Let's take a second to thank this week's sponsor of the High Hat Film Podcast, Monsters Incorporated. They power your car. They warm your home. They light your city. Carefully matching every child to their ideal monster to produce superior screams, refined into clean, dependable energy. Every time you turn something on, Monsters Incorporated is there. They know the challenge. The window of innocence is shrinking. Human kids are harder to scare. MI is prepared for the future with top scarers, the best refineries, and research into new energy techniques. They're working for a better tomorrow. Today. Monsters Incorporated. They scare because they care. to the Hi-Hat Film Podcast, a comical and critical look at the world of film. Michael Clancy here once again for episode 49 as we swing the doors of the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame open once again. Mark Donaldson returns to the show after successfully submitting the Vincent Price rather silly slasher horror, Theatre of Blood, all the way back in episode 24. You couldn't get much further removed with his choice of film for this week's show, however. Joshua Oppenheimer's powerful and deeply unsettling The Act of Killing from 2012. It's a controversial film in which Oppenheimer looks at the war crimes that occurred in Indonesia in the mid-1960s, in which a million communists were brutally murdered by the military. Oppenheimer spends a lot of time with the men responsible for many of the deaths during this period, and controversially allows the men an opportunity to recreate their actions on the big screen. It's a savage examination of a black period in a country's bloody history, and a fascinating look at the effects of guilt on the human psyche. But will Mark be able to make a case for it to be the 20th film into the Hall of Fame? We shall find out in due time. Now normally to lead us into the discussion I would play a clip or the trailer for the film, but as it's completely in Indonesian there are no clips or snippets from the soundtrack that would be appropriate. Instead we're going to hear from acclaimed documentarians. Errol Morris and Werner Herzog, who each served as executive producers on the film, as they give their thoughts on the film in an interview they did with Vice magazine. I think there's some inherent madness in this approach. Here we have Josh tracking these people down and asking them to participate in a movie. Not a movie where you chronicle this historical event, you ask them to participate in a quote-unquote fiction film based on real events where they reenact these murders, these murders that they committed. They happily agree to do so, with the emphasis on happily. So there was Joshua Oppenheimer who didn't say much. He opened his laptop and showed me eight minutes excerpts from his film. And I looked at it and I immediately knew I had never seen anything like that. I had never seen anything as powerful, as frightening and as surreal as what was on the screen. And I immediately said, this is big. 
This is truly, truly big. And so the hallowed halls of the Hall of Fame swing open once more for another attempted submission. And joining me now to potentially submit what will be the 20th film into the Hall yeah. of Fame. It's a, a, a blast from the past. The man who was on our, our second Hall of Fame episode, all those... Oh, it's been almost a year to the day, I would probably say, when he submitted Theatre of Blood, but delighted to welcome back to the show Mark Donaldson. Thanks, Henry. But you've redecorated since yeah. the last time. Oh, well, ex- expansion, expansion, <laughs> expansion, Mark. You know, uh, onwards and upwards, that is the way we do it here. But, uh, and, and things have changed quite a lot. So, you know, last time you just came on and we chatted about Vincent Price dispatching theatre critics in a yeah. variety of odd costumes, and, and we, were, <laughs> we were done and dusted in, a, in about half an hour, but... So much more to get through today. Yeah, you know? I don't think I'm getting off as lightly this time, am I? You're di- well, you're not because you've picked a very, very different film. Uh, yes, which we'll, yes. Which we'll certainly get to. But there's before you can even get to that, there's a couple more hoops you've got to jump through. Uh, there's no more quick-fire questions, I'm afraid. Instead, we've drawn out the, the process to, to ten long-winded uh, <laughs> questions instead. So uh, we can we can jump right into those, if, if that's all right with you. Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. All right, so first up, uh, what was the first film that you saw or remember seeing in the cinema? I, I don't really have... I don't know what the first film I ever saw in the cinema is. Because, like, I, I had my, my earliest sort of cinema memory. It's seen Home Alone 2. Mm. I must have been about seven. So, like, yeah. that's... You know, I know fine well I would have seen <laughs> films before that point. But there's just something about watching Home Alone 2. It was like the Odeon on South Clark Street. It's this, like, lovely old... Well, it used to be this lovely old cinema. And I just remember all of that. I remember coming out of that and really enjoying the film. And my mum being mortified at the violence in it and all that. I remember all of this, but I honestly, God, can't remember. Maybe nothing had an effect on me until I saw Home Alone 2. Until you saw Joe Pesci getting his head caved in with a lead pipe. Yeah, because I mean, it could have possibly also have been the Thunderbirds, the original sort of Thunderbirds movie. Mm-hmm. Not in 1960 <laughs> when it came out, but, uh, but that would have. Being about the same time, maybe even later, because I know they only started repeating Thunderbirds on the telly in like '92. Right. So yeah, it must must be Home Alone too. Yeah. All right. Well, it was a good one to start. Ah, it made an impression, definitely. Uh, what about your five favorite directors? Right. Well, you know, cl- cliche though it is, but let's face it, cliches are cliches for a reason. Martin Scorsese, number one, just that was my sort of gateway into into film, really, when I I started buying DVDs and videos back when I was about 15, 16 years old. Is there a particular one? Taxi Driver was the first one I bought just because that's what I you know, read about. I said, oh, I've got to see this film. This, that's a, that's this a cool like, grown-up film yeah, that you need this, to see. Yeah, this is what I need to see. So I watched that. But actually, the, the, the first one, I mean, Raging Bull, I remember seeing that. I got as much as I love Taxi Driver. That was kind of the first moment where I was like, shit, films can be an art form, like a yeah. proper kind of artistic thing. This is just a stunning-looking film. And just the way he gets those cameras to move and it's, yeah, it's, it's something. So that had an effect on me. And you know, later films they've become a bit more bloated. Uh, you know, uh, but I still, I've still got a soft spot for him. I'll still be there on opening night for a new Scorsese film. Yeah, and just you know, he's the sort of director. He, he's known for kind of the violence and the gangsters and things like that. But you know, it wasn't so long ago that he threw up something like Hugo, and completely. I, loved. I loved it yeah. as well, and it just completely surprises you. You know, you could show that film to somebody that's seen Goodfellas and Casino and all these, and they would, they ne- I don't think yeah. they'd be able to guess that that was Hugo. Yes, I mean, in terms of certain, you know, like the old, the tracking shot and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, there's certain tropes in there, but in terms of yeah, this is the guy that directed Goodfellas. You're like, <laughs> what? 
And I think the other reason why he's one of my favourite directors is he's so cine-literate as well. He's got such a love for film and he's such a kind of big purveyor of that kind of, you know, we've got to maintain these old film cans because they are, they are works of art and they are things that deserve to be preserved for, for future generations. Definitely, definitely. I'm looking forward to his, his next one, Silence, which I think is out yeah, later this yes. year. About, I think uh, so, yeah. I think tail end this year. Yeah, so. it should be good. Um, number two, Terry Gilliam. I just, although you can, and there has been a few, there's weak Terry Gilliam films. There's, you can, there's stuff on the screen and it doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter. The, just the visuals are interesting enough to kind of see you through, whereas it's something like the Zero Theorem, which I wasn't that big a fan of. It's still a nice film to look at, and it's still doing interesting things with the visuals and with the, the set design and with the, the costumes and stuff like that. He's, he is a filmmaker that's kind of unlike no other, um, really, I think. so. Yeah, I, I really appreciate him. You know, even, and Zero Theorem is a good example, even when he doesn't get it quite right, there's always, there's always something of value. There's always definitely something worth watching on screen. Definitely. Uh, Park Chan-wook as well, uh, right. Korean director, directed Old Boy. Sure. Was the, the first of his films that I saw and was just blown away mm-hmm. by it. Just again, so inventive, just like opening a film with a guy coming out of a suitcase. <laughs> such a striking image. And and as it goes on, it's this sort of twisty, turning revenge film that's kind of taking place in this almost fantasy world um, in terms of some of the, the stuff that's going on. Uh, but actually also at the film festival a few years ago, I went to see him talk live, mm-hmm. which was quite a stunted experience because obviously he's speaking through a translator. Sure. Um, but this was just after showing uh, I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. Right. Which he did as kind of a film that his daughter could love. Because uh, it's quite a sweet romantic oh, tale. Oh, he wouldn't about... be showing her old boy, huh? <laughs> it's quite a sweet romantic tale about these two people in a, in a mental asylum mm-hmm. and sort of find love. Uh, but it still has a moment in which she believes she's a cyborg and guns down, <laughs> guns down <laughs> the whole asylum staff. All right. Okay. So you know he's still got that kind of that edge even when he's telling these lovely romantic stories. Oh, and I think also this kind of move into western cinema with Stoker, I thought was amazing. Oh, I forgot about Stoker. That yeah, that that, that is quite something. That was just because you sometimes get the case when when a director kind of moves from his kind of native country to make a film in the west you feel like studio pressures and studio influences can kind of take away his style. Um, but it's still got that kind of Eastern feel to it um, throughout. And still his eye for, for images and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah he's, he's maintained that and I can't wait to see what he does next. That's a really, really strong pick. I, I, I don't know the I Am A Cyborg film. or I, I, I'll, I'll definitely seek that one out. Sounds good. good. Uh, ben Wheatley, number four. I know you've had. I know the kill list. Uh, right. Kill list is in this this hall. Itself. Yeah, we we like Ben Wheatley around here. He's just great. It's mm-hmm. just such, it's so good to see a British director doing so well. And kind of, I lo- like. I love the fact his first film is is a gangster film, but there's just something slightly different about it. And Kill List again is kind of it's a hitman film, but then it just turns into <laughs> but then it is something isn't. completely different. Yeah. Um, but still maintaining that kind of, I guess, that British feel of like the wicker man of, you know, almost quite a mass in the pit kind of thing. Um, and yeah, he's gone on to do bigger and, and better things. And he also directed Doctor Who. So, oh, did he? Uh, so, you know, that's always just... Obviously. <laughs> uh, and then five Spielberg, just because, you know, it's Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I don't think you need to elaborate I too much on just, that. You know. it speaks for itself. All right. Uh, what about your five favourite actresses? 
Uh, Meryl Streep again. I don't think I really need to elaborate on that. This is Meryl, Meryl Streep's brilliant. She could play Batman, and she'd be she, the right casting for she her. She could play Batman. <laughs> I would. I would happily watch that. Uh, Julianne Moore, just because I'm just trying, partly because I'm trying to butter you up, but also because she's fucking brilliant. She, yeah, yeah. I mean, she deserves it. We we, um, we we prattle on about her, but it's well deserved. Every film she does, there's just. It's just a completely different performance, just a completely different uh, character, and she can just do so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and a well-deserved Oscar this year. Yes. Well. Um, Jennifer Lawrence is I, I think sure. very, very good. You know, she goes from these big franchise movies into kind of smaller David or Russell films mm-hmm. uh, without missing a beat. And again, she's somebody that is playing completely different characters. Like, her character in American Hustle is so far removed <laughs> from Katniss Everdeen from, from The Hunger Games. And she's, she's great. I think, you know, she's very much a, a talent that's only going to keep getting getting better. I'm interested to see what the next step is going to be like yeah. beyond Hunger Games. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think maybe more serious art house films. Because, yeah. I mean, she's still got the X-Men franchise as well, I think. Right, well. right, so, yeah. I think she's... So she's still got that kind of security, I guess, to kind of maybe go off and do more interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, Kerry Mulligan, I think, is oh, brilliant terrific, well. yeah, yeah. Um, Shame uh, is, is great. She's brilliant in that. Have uh, you seen her in a, An Education? I have, yeah. and she is... She is brilliant. Um, I just remember the first time I saw her was, I keep bringing back Doctor Who, but was in one of the best ever episodes <laughs> of, of Doctor Who. And it was all carried by her. It was one of those episodes where they give David Tennant a week off. Right. So you're just watching her throughout the whole thing. She's, she's really good. So then when an education comes out and she wins a BAFTA for you, like, yeah, okay, yeah, this is, this is, <laughs> this is really good. Doctor Who check, BAFTA check. Yeah, she's, yeah, she'll go yeah, far. She'll go far. And um, she's in Suffragette, which is coming out later this year with right. Meryl Streep. So, you know. I'll be there. Uh, and number five, Emily Blunt. Just because I really like Emily Blunt. Yeah, I haven't seen enough of her stuff. There's actually. not enough of there's not enough of her stuff at the moment. I mean, My Summer Love, I think, was the first thing I saw her in, which it's a good performance. But mm-hmm. also, it, you know, if you're of a certain disposition, there's there's more things to enjoy. Again, I'm being terribly sexist. <laughs> um, so it's quite a striking performance. And then I just kind of like, keep an eye on her and. Yeah, she does. She does some great stuff. I mean, like again, somebody who kind of I don't think is ever really kind of typecast. She starts off as this kind of quite rowdy teenager in Summer of Love, mm-hmm. and then she's playing like an action heroine in Edge of Tomorrow and, and things like that. Live Die Repeat, <laughs> or Live Die Repeat, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think she's great. Yeah, good stuff. All right, what about the men then? The men. Yeah. Again, cliche is as cliche does. Robert De Niro, number one. I don't sure. care what you say. You can throw as many meet the fuckers, as many Rocky and Blue Winkles at me as you like. <laughs> but this man was Tavis Bickle, this man was Jake LaMotta, this guy was Rupert Pupkin. That's enough. You know, yeah. He was bloody Corleone as well. Yeah. Like young Corleone. You don't... That, that's it. That's there's what, that's there's it. no arguments here. I mean, I would argue the first Meet the Parents film is... is it's, fair, it's fine. Yeah. You know, there's, there's it's a good performance. Yeah. I mean, the performance is better than the film itself. And but. the thing is, he is great at comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, and I suppose that has led to... Perhaps you've gone, hey, Robert De Niro's really good at comedy, let's just fling loads at him. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I maintain that Midnight, Midnight Run's one of my favourite films. It's just so much fun. Uh, and that's his, I, I don't know, I guess, because was it before or after King of Comedy? But either way, it's, it's yeah. an early comic performance before everybody lost their shit over Analyze This <laughs> and Meet the Parent. Oh, boy. Uh, and then I'm going to go a bit British for the next three. I see Mark Strong. Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting I love Mark Strong, because mm-hmm. again, 
like one minute he's an Arabian prince, <laughs> the next minute he's like a New York gangster. Yeah. And and you're like, well, I know that is Mark Strong, but everything else he's doing, you know, this is this is great for. Uh, number three, Peter Mullen. I just love Peter oh, Mullen. Yes. Did you see Hector? I didn't get a chance to see Hector, unfortunately. Because it is quite a slight film. Yeah. But it just, I came out of it just feeling so just happy. Yeah. And just like, oh my god. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Because a lot of Peter Mullen films I don't well, come exactly. away happy. You don't. Because he is kind of go-to man for a gruff Glasgow gangster. Yeah. But, you know, he's, he's great. Uh, Sunshine and on a, Leith. Great, well, yeah. great singing voice. And a good singing voice. Kind of Tom Waitsy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I love Peter Mullen. Uh, Fassbender, number mm-hmm. four. Cause he's he's great, so hot right now. Uh, and again, you know, like he's an X-Men. And he can just lend gravitas and, you know, to any old shit. Mm-hmm. A bit like Idris Elba can. Yeah, it's he's, true. He's got that kind of quality. I feel like the, the, the makers of the Bond franchise saw him in that first X-Men film and were like, God, what? we've missed yeah, a trick. Yeah, we can't get him now, but longer, this guy yeah. could have been Bond. Yeah, he could have been. He could well have been. Because um, I do, I remember watching that first class going, oh man, this is the James Bond we could have had. Yeah. And number five, George Clooney. I just think there's just something really charming and he's that kind of old school Hollywood you know, A-list actor. Yeah. You know, fair enough, he's not stretching many acting muscles most of the time, but don't care. He's, he's a very charming presence. He's got a good sense of humour. He's quite self-deprecating in interviews and stuff like that. Did you, yeah. did you catch Tomorrowland? I didn't. I kind of missed it. It's a, you know, it's, it's been get, it was a massive flop financially yeah. and it, it got, got, a, bit time, got a bit of a hard time from critics. There were a couple of people that spoke about out on it and, you know, I've seen it on some best of the year so far mm-hmm. lists as as well as some people saying they didn't like it at all. But he's he's really good in it. He's yeah. he's really fun. Him and the uh, the lead actress, uh, Britt Robertson, I think it oh, is. Oh yeah. yeah. uh, Worked really really well together. Yeah, I'll I'll check it out at some point yeah. certainly. But yeah, I, I just love Clooney. Ah, he's good. So yeah, that's my that's my five actors. Fantastic. All right, uh, let's talk more about the films then. What what would you say is your favorite comedy? Uh, with me on I. Yeah. I just think it's just. Just a perfect kind of representation of male friendship. <laughs> it's just <laughs> they've gone on holiday by mistake. <laughs> it's just so funny. Just three, just brilliant central performances and just a great script. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. Have you ever attempted to play the drinking game? I haven't actually. As, as many times as I've watched with you, I think the closest I ever came was I sat and watched them with a bottle of wine. Yeah, which was very much finished by the time the film finished. Yeah, you can't really keep up with them. No, you can't. What about your favourite sci-fi? Uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. I just remember seeing the Blade Runner for the first time. It was like on ITV or something at like nine o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the hell is this? This is stunning. It's... Just the way that the city's realised in terms of like the model work. Remember model work? Remember <laughs> when that was a thing? Um, and the you know set design and all that kind of thing. It just feels like you are in a futuristic city. And it's, it's a great story as well. It's... It's like, it's, I mean, as you get older, you pick up the sort of film noir references and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And it's just something that I can go back to again and again and still see something new and, and fresh in it. And you'll be waiting with bated breath for the, the upcoming sequel. Bated breath and clenched fists, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I've only seen it twice, and the first time I saw it was only probably about four or five years ago. Right. I saw it again very recently in the cinema. And the two thoughts were... I mean that is absolutely superb. Yeah. Absolutely love it. I didn't quite get it the first time round, and it was I think you know that's maybe the difference between seeing it on DVD and seeing it in the cinema. But mm-hmm. uh, and the second thing I thought about it was if ever a film did not require a sequel, it's, the... it, it's Blade Runner. Like yeah. 
you can make an argument for going back to your Jurassic Parks. You can make an argument for going back to the Alien franchise. But but Blade Runner is just a standalone brilliant yeah. film. I don't. And the thing is, here's the secret: it's lasted about thirty odd years without a sequel. <laughs> yeah. Sure, it can last another thirty. I but... yeah. I I just happily watched the the film again yeah. rather than see some kind of yeah, continuation. Yeah, very concerned. <laughs> yeah. But uh... at the end of the day, I suppose it's that thing where. If I don't enjoy the sequel, I'll just never watch the sequel again yeah. and just pretend it never happened. Yeah, and that's easy enough yeah, to do. And it, and and if it is a stinker, it will be forgotten about yeah, pretty exactly. quickly. Nobody's anyway. forcing it onto your DVD shelves yeah. or anything like that. Exactly. All right. What about your favorite animated feature? Well, I was going to be really pretentious and go for The Illusionist. Uh, All right. Because mm-hmm. that is genuinely like my favorite animated film of the past, you know, decade. But if I'm being honest with myself, it's The Lion King. Yeah. Oh yeah, like just people that you know go on about how all the songs in Frozen are great. I'm not, I always go. Have you not seen the Lion King? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's just so good. But with Frozen, I mean, the, it, there's there's five songs in the first half an hour. Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna have that many songs in your film, you yeah, there's gonna be a couple of classics yeah. in there. But uh, Lion King, brilliant. Lion King is great. I mean, I just remember it being the first time I watched a Disney film. I'm going, oh, this is this is for me. Because as I've actually come to appreciate Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and stuff like that, as I've got older, I'm going, yeah, it's okay, you can enjoy things with princesses in it, that's, yeah. that's allowed. Uh, I just remember watching The Lion King and I was kind of going, yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's about men and you know, Lions are fathers cool. and sons and all that kind of thing. Thank goodness they finally <laughs> made a film for men. Yeah, at last. <laughs> Our voices are What's finally What's that like heard. from Parks and Rec? It's just like us, us white men have had it quite hard yeah. <laughs> very recently. You're ridiculous and men's rights is nothing. Uh, I saw Inside Out during the Edinburgh right, Film yeah. Festival, and it's it's already right up there. It's one of my favourite anime. I've films. heard lots it's... of good stuff because I, I, I saw like the pictures of it and I've seen the trailers. Wasn't that taken with it? But mm-hmm. everything I've heard from people who saw it at Edinburgh was just like, I said, this sounds incredible. Yeah, it's like I don't. I'm I'm very wary of gushing on about a film because all it does is build up expectation, yeah. which, as we've talked about, is uh, <laughs> high expectations are, are a dangerous thing in the in the in the film business. But uh, it's just it's funny and it's really clever and it's got a lot of heart to it. You know, it's it's sort of Pixar right back at their very very best, Excellent. I would say. So definitely, because there was a worry last year, wasn't there? When because they had to delay. I don't think it was Inside Out they delayed, was it? Oh, they there, pushed... there was there was they pushed something back that was supposed to be out last yeah year. maybe the good dinosaur Possibly. or something like that. I worry that oh yeah, losing their mojo, but and then all their sequels and then yeah, Toy Story four and all, and all that. We've covered sequels. We yeah. can move on from that. <laughs> all right, your your favorite soundtrack and or score then? Um, I have a favorite soundtrack. It's um the proposition. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Nicky Warren yeah. score. Um, so I'm going to see the film when I was a student in Aberdeen in uh, the Belmont Center. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. Film house over there. It's a lovely cinema on Belmont Street. I remember coming out of Belmont Street, walking to the end of the street where there was a there was a fob, and just going yeah, and just buying the, <laughs> buying the score, which is the first and I think only time I've ever actually done that. Because I mean, I love Nick Cave anyway. Yeah. 
but it's just so evocative. Mm-hmm. And then also there's just some really cracking Nick Cave songs in there. Well, I need to check that out. I don't know it too well. I mean, the film is one of those hidden gems. Yeah, like, it's, it's terrific. Not enough people have seen that. No, nah. it deserves a lot fantastic. of praise. Okay, uh, what's one film that you wish was never made? I and you do have to limit it to one, just yeah, in the well, interest the of thing. time. I think I was like, oh god, how do I limit it to one? Because I was thinking, like, I kind of wish Taken had never been made. <laughs> I loved it, I really enjoyed Taken, yeah. but everything that it's led to, I kind of wish had never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might just, st- yeah, let's just go with Taken. Let's All right. just go with Taken. I like the idea of that, because then... <laughs> That, that speech that he makes is just dropped into, you know, yeah. memes and, uh, and I watched culture. a film a couple of, I think it was last year. It was dread, dreadful, dreadful film. Fire with Fire with uh, Josh Dallo and Bruce Willis. Right. He's a fireman, right? He's a fireman. He witnesses a murder. And the guys are going to, like, get gonna get him because he's witnessed, the, you know, they can't have this witness out there because he's going to bring him down. And basically, because he's a fireman, and his parents were killed in a fire. He knows how to, to basically, he's got the particular set of skills <laughs> to dispose of this gangster that's trying to kill him Jeez. in a fire. It, that sort of film. <laughs> <laughs> that and sounds I mean, they, great. They have existed before Taken, of course they have. Yeah. But there's just something about, oh, that made loads of money. <laughs> Let's just make more of this. But even the Taken sequel, just yeah. don't bother. And with Liam Neeson, he's gone on, and I, I quite like Nonstop, and I quite oh, yeah, I and uh, that other one he was in this year, Run All Night or oh, something like that. that. And I thought I thought that was fine, you know. But it's just you can't help but think when it's somebody as talented as Liam Neeson, it's like you, you've got better things <laughs> yeah. you could be doing with yeah. your time, man. You, you know, you're better than you're, this. you were you're Oscar Schindler for goodness sake. But, uh, <laughs> that's a that's a, a good pick. So for definitely. the good of mankind, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right, what was the uh, last thing you saw in the cinema? I saw Mr. Holmes last night. Ah, terrific. I which that this I week. just, it was just wonderful. Just yeah. Like a, just a really warm, wonderful film. And it was so nice to see Sherlock Holmes on the screen not being an autistic dick. Yeah. Like, because... Just a yeah, crotchety I'd, I'd, I'd old man. spoiling the plot. He, he's, he feels like... A, he is a crotchety old man, but mm-hmm. there is a humanity there. and he, There's warmth towards this, this boy that, that is sort of living with him. I was so sure that boy, because uh, he was like exhibiting the same sort of skills as Holmes. I thought we were gonna at the end there was gonna be a montage and he was gonna grow up to be Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch in uh, in London as the maybe yeah. <laughs> these days with shared cinematic universe. I mean, I didn't stay till the end of the credits. Oh, so that's I, true. I didn't see that, that either. That could have happened. There'll don't be know. a bit where Martin Freeman will turn up and say, "You've got some work to do. Come on, how did you fall off that building?" <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I I really liked it as well. Uh, yeah. It was just really, really good. I just, I, I want more of Ian McKellen as Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily as a 93-year-old man, but like... Yeah, the flashbacks. flashbacks like, oh yeah, he's he, good. He feels he's, very much like the, it's very good. the Sherlock Holmes you imagine in the books. Mm-hmm. I want to see his hand-to-hand combat though. Yes. <laughs> but I also like the fact, I mean, without spoiling it, that it doesn't end the way you expect it to end, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. I I, I was happy enough with that. I, I, I thought it was uh, without going into spoiler territory. Mm-hmm. I was satisfied. All right, terrific. Well, that's the questionnaire out of the way. I dare say you're ready now for the the ultimate challenge that has frustrated and delighted <laughs> guests for for some time now. It and is... listeners, I, you know, I play along. <laughs> oh, good. I, that, that that's that's the beauty of the game. It is attack of the rotten tomatoes.
So for people that don't know, we're listening for the first time, and we're on Earth of TV. It is a higher or low, lower game based on films, scores that they've uh, been scored on the Rotten Tomatoes website, which is a collection of film critics' scores and judgments of films, basically. So you'll get 11 films, 10, 10 questions, a potential uh, 10 out of 10 score is, is what you're going for. 9 out of 10 is the highest score that we've had so far, held by Joe Morrison twice. He's been on and he's, he's got back-to-back successful 9 out of 10s, which is uh, frustrating, but I'll, I'll stack the deck for him next time. So uh, you've got a choice of categories. You can choose the category that's been with me from the beginning and I'm trying to get rid of. It's movies where Brendan Gleeson dies. Uh, you can have... It's a bit of a spoiler, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, yeah, it will be spoiler heavy. Although in some, some cases, it's uh, well, you see it coming. Uh, you can have the movies of Julianne Moore. Or you can have films with dinosaurs in them, in honour of Jurassic Whoa. World right now. So Let's take films with dinosaurs in them. Alright, films with dinosaurs for 500. Well, we're, I'm going to start with a, a nice middle-of-the-road film. film that I actually quite liked, with lots of dinosaurs in them. It is The Lost World Jurassic Park. Okay. And that started off with 51%. And, you know, it is what it is, but I think it has some really great moments in it. But, yeah. uh, I still think Jurassic World is the, is the better. Sort of Jurassic Park sequels, but... Yeah, I think I'd agree, but um, I think The Lost World, uh, it's, it's got some good good stuff about it. So that's got 51%. Your next one is the animated dino classic, The Land Before Time. And this is the original. The original not... one, like, volume 23, <laughs> yeah, or no. whatever they got to the end. This is the first one, so you got 51% is, okay. uh, is your score to beat. I think that's higher, but maybe not by much, but I think it's higher. With 70%? Yeah. Yeah. Comfortably. Comfortably higher. Off to a good start. Presumably, you know, if, if it started off quite low, there wouldn't have been the demand for, for 12 other sequels. That's true. That's true. Alright, so next up, it's uh, the first part of what turned into an unlikely trilogy of films in which Ben Stiller would run around a museum at night time occasionally being pursued by the skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It is Night at the Museum, and the first one in the series. And uh, 70% is your score to be. I think that's probably higher than the before time, I think. At 44%. Oh, really? Yeah, Night at the Museum. And it spawned two more sequels. Spawned two more sequels. That Critics just goes like to show it. critical, you know, opinion matters nothing. No. When it comes to the general public. As if there was any doubt on that. <laughs> I have to say, I bought my ticket and I went along to see the first one, so I'm as guilty as anyone in there being two sequels to it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I basically got to get everything else right now. <laughs> That's it, if you want to, if you want to right. be at the top of the scoreboard, so we know that we're not getting a 10 out of 10. Your next one, uh, in which John Goodman travelled back in time to Bedrock playing oh, right. Fred Flintstone with uh, Rick Moranis and uh, Rosie O'Donnell and an early role for Halle Berry, yeah. Kyle MacLachlan yeah. in it. How did this? How did this film not have Oscar success? Honestly, with a cast like that, the forty-four percent is your score to beat for the Flintstones. That's it is lower. Twenty-one percent for the Flintstones. Because I remember hating it as a child. <laughs> not even. This isn't the Flintstones, Mum. <laughs> not even a catchy uh, uh, soundtrack from the B52s could elevate oh, it beyond yeah. that. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Flintstones were twenty-one percent. Your next one is another kind of spin-off from a beloved children's TV 
series, perhaps not so much in the UK, but certainly in the US, it was the Will Ferrell vehicle, uh, Land of the Lost. Okay. Will Ferrell, he's, uh, he's had some, some good ones, he's had some turkeys. Where, yeah, where do you what think... Were the Flintstones again? The, the, the Flintstones was 21%. I think it's... No, that's a tough one. Because you think 21%, it's, it's quite low down, but actually, it's not. There's a long way to still so go. it could be lower. It could be lower. Could be. That is the... That is well, let's, the let's risk it. Let's go lower. There was 5% between it, between the Flintstones and Land of the Lost, and sadly with 26%, it. it was higher. But not by much. Alright, so next up... There was a series of animated films involving saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and all that, and God knows, they're called Ice Age, and God knows how many of them they went on to spawn. But there was one called Dawn of the Dinosaurs, which I haven't seen, but I'm assuming there's a dinosaur or two in that. So, Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, higher or lower than the 26% of Land of the Lost? Surely. 45%, yep. So you've got three out of five so far, so you're scooting along there, right right on that, that average line. Next up, uh, back in 2003, Peter Jackson, when he was taking a wee break from, from Middle Earth, he decided to, to try his hand at updating the stop motion, stop motion animated classic King Kong, and he, he thought Adrian Brody and Naomi Watts and, uh, and Andy Serkis were the people to do that. So King Kong, his remake, 45%. Higher or lower? Just a bit higher. Well, more than just a bit higher. 84% positive. Really? Yeah, people loved that when it Did first they? came out. Yeah, they loved it. They, they... I mean, it was alright. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... 84 seems... But that's just 84% of people going, yeah, it was alright. Okay, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to be... True, you know, true. <laughs> what was Sometimes... it? Somebody said the other day, it's like, yeah, but I mean, three stars is just basically every film that comes out. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, anything else is either, like, surprisingly very, very good or just dreadful. Yeah, and that, and that's where the numbers can be misleading. You know, when you think you've got a score in the 90s, you think, oh, everyone loved that film. But it could <laughs> just be lots of people going, yeah, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> Then next up, uh, we're going we're going back in time, one million years BC, when uh, Raquel Welsh was oh, running right. around in a fur okay. bikini, and again, I, I believe with that timeline there was probably a dinosaur or two in that. Eighty four percent is the score to beat. I mean, as much as I like horror films, uh, I think it's probably lower than eighty four. Yep, it was right down the middle with fifty uh, percent. So yeah, doing doing very well there. You've got. Four out of six so far. So. Yeah, yeah, getting there, getting there. Next up, there was a... I remember going in when I was a teenager and there was previews for this film and it was like a good five minute kind of action set piece of a dinosaur running through volcanoes exploding and stuff like that. It was a Disney film and I think it's been completely forgotten about now. It's just called Dinosaur. And oh, I never yeah. saw the film. I never saw it either. It just I sort of came and went yeah. and it's completely forgotten about. I think that was during their sort of difficult... Late yeah, phase, yeah, it? it was when they were like computer animation was just yeah. sort of coming on the scene and they wanted to do something spectacular with it, but weren't too sure what. So, 50% is the score to beat for Dinosaur. I mean, I didn't see it, it came and went. Uh, did that... the critics, and yeah, they see it, did they enjoy it? Uh, let's go with, uh, yeah, let's go a bit lower 65%, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. 
probably should have dropped in a couple of songs about some, <laughs> some charming snowmen or something. Yeah. They, they might have done even better than that. Might have stood the test of time. Alright, uh, next up is uh, Brendan Fraser tackling Jules Verne in Journey to the Centre of the Earth. He, he did a film like that and I guess they got to the centre of the earth and there were, there were still some dinosaurs kicking about. That's um, the 65% is your score to beat. I mean, that's where you would hide, wouldn't it? If a meteor was going to you know, decimate the, the surface of the earth, I suppose you would burrow right into the centre of the ground. Yeah. Certainly earth. No, no two ways about it, I suppose. Now let's go with a little more. It was 60, what was it, 65 yeah, 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 was... to beat and uh, 61%. So, and again, you know, it went on to spawn a sequel with Dwayne the Rock. I actually watched the first one. With was... Dwayne the Rock Johnson. What was that? Right. Journey to Mysterious Island with, with Michael Caine. Something like that. Yeah, alright. Well. Was the Rock bouncing like berries with the nipples or something like that? Right, oh no. You've, you've lost me. Alright, so you've got one more to go. And I think you're going to finish quite strongly here, actually, because your your final one is is uh, the original Jurassic Park oh, from wow. <laughs> back in 1990, 1992. Was it received as favorably as a Journey of the Center of the Earth? Both See, both classics in their own in their own yeah, right. What I thought you were going to do at the start of this was put Jurassic Park because it's like, well, okay, you know, we know this this is going to be quite high, so then, you know, but then I suppose that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lower. And no wonder, sorry, higher, 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 higher. Do I take your first answer? Oh, I'll, I'll let you away with it. 93%, which actually still seems quite low to me. I mean, everybody yeah. should love that film. But 93% means you finish strongly and you finish with a score of 7 out of 10. Okay, well, I'm happy yeah. with that. That's yeah. That puts you right up there with uh, other people that have scored 7 out of 10. I don't have the list in front of me, but uh, yeah, good job. All right. Excellent. All right. Yeah, right down the middle there. We've, our highest is 9, our lowest is 5, so you are right right there along the middle. And it means we, I think we can continue. So uh, okay, good. without good further ado, let's leave the uh, the tomfoolery yeah, of Attack of the Yeah, well, we do like to have fun on the show. You know, we do, the tagline is a comical and critical look at the world of film. But I think, you know, given the subject matter of the film we're discussing, it's going to be it's going to be quite a serious chat because the film you've picked is the 2012 Joshua Oppenheimer documentary, The Act of Killing, uh, which. Uh, was very well received. It got a 95% critic favorable score on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 85% with audiences. It won a BAFTA for Best Documentary. Why don't you kick us off by just telling us what the film is all about? Uh, yeah, well, um, sort of, in 1965, there was a, a military uprising in Indonesia, um, which resulted in the deaths of almost a million communists. You can't see it on audio, but I'm putting inverted commas on, on the word communists because it seemed to be the case that anybody could be just accused of being a communist and then and then murdered. Um, which is a horrible, reprehensible genocide that, that took place in Indonesia in the 60s. So you, 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 know, you would think that these people would have been punished and you know, tried for their crimes, but they haven't been. They've gone on to be quite successful politicians, people who still have a lot of um, power and influence in Indonesia today. So what the act of killing does, it's... Um, Joshua Oppenheimer spent a lot of time in Indonesia talking to people that were responsible, um, sort of military leaders and people quite high up in the government. And what he, for this film, there's a, he's done a lot of interviews leading up to this one, but for this, for the act of killing, he invites Amor Congo and Herman Cotto uh, to talk about the, the crimes that they committed. 
and reenact them in the style of the Hollywood films that they so dearly loved because what their job was at the time of this of this uprising was they were two gangsters uh, that basically sold bootleg cinema tickets mm-hmm. um, to people and they, they love you know their Gary Coopers their John Waynes and all that kind of thing um, so he invites them to, to talk about th- their crimes and to, to make a film about what happened in 1965 um, so that's kind of in a documentary style yeah uh, <laughs> and it is it is a really really tough watch yeah it's it's it it's got many many shocking scenes I mean obviously the subject matter they are it's talking about genocide and it is you know you spend for the theatrical cut at, at least and I think you've seen the, the director's cut as well you spend two hours with these people yeah. and what they could try and show you from the very beginning is how completely unrepentant they are yeah. and how much they you know they they joke about it there's a there's a scene where uh in the in the beginning where anwar congo takes you up to a scene where he he strangled so many of his victims and he, he does like a little dance as he's well as he's, he's still there. wearing the because he's mm-hmm. talking about grotting somebody yeah yeah we go about it so he's got this sort of bit of well i don't think it's piano wire but very thin sort of chicken wire or something like that mm-hmm. around his neck mm-hmm. while he's dancing along yeah it's a really bizarre image uh and it really, and it's it's a film full of really bizarre and haunting, troubling images. Um, it has this kind of nightmarish, dreamlike kind of quality mm-hmm. to some of the some of the scenes. Well, I mean, so it's it's not a pleasant watch by any <laughs> stretch, and anyone that's seen it will will understand that. I, I guess my question is, uh, why why have you picked this film as a, as a, a potential candidate for the Hall of Fame? Because, well, purely because I'm a big fan of documentary films and. Uh, I remember seeing this film at the time in the cinema and just being completely blown away by it. Um, I mean, I've, I've done a documentary course at university. I've seen you mm-hmm. know a lot of documentaries that have affected me in various different ways. But this was like something completely different, something that I'd never quite seen before. And I think, you know, that's, that's what you want in your, in your Hall of Fame is, is you know, it's films that kind of push, push the boundaries of, of you know expectations of you know genre genre conventions and, and stuff like that, which is what this does. But I mean, also, in terms of what it, the effect has had, and I'm sure we'll, we'll probably talk about this later. But it has had such an effect on Indonesia um, since it's come out, and it's actually starting to have a wider effect in the world in terms of the role America and the UK did or didn't play mm-hmm. in you know in the actions at the time. That's interesting. I'm looking forward to getting onto that because I, I don't actually know the, the, the effects that it's had and that, that will perhaps uh, uh, help me <laughs> along my journey of it because uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate quite a lot in, yeah. in this one, Mark. And I, and I think it, I, I, I was blown away by this film when I first saw it as well. In 2013, I listed it as my second favourite film of the year. Yeah. I was completely amazed by it. It's funny, I, I, I think it's my... Well, it's so weird to use the term favourite yeah. in terms of the film, isn't it? It's, yeah. Because like, you're like, yeah, it was I said, the best film, but then that seems really grand. Because my favourite yeah. figure... Well, what I like to do, you know, I have kind of set questions to guide us along yeah. the conversations, and I usually ask my guests, why do they love this film? But obviously that is not... <laughs> An appropriate question. Uh, what I, what I do want to ask, um, I mean, the first time I saw the film, 
completely horrified by the actions of these people, by their their seemingly unrepentive nature, you know, their candidness, the way they talk about it, and the way that they've they're, they're still kind of in charge, still running the country. The second time I saw it, and I watched it again uh, just this week, I again was completely horrified by those actions, but I was also quite unsettled by by some of the filmmaking decisions in it with Joshua Oppenheimer. I mean, there's. And, the, and it's a question that has come up with the ethical filmmaking, and we'll, we'll maybe get onto that a little bit more, because, you know, there's scenes where he's essentially enabling these guys to go back and create these things, and there's yeah. scenes where they're, they're, they have extras, and those are people that must have lived through these times, and there's a... So, I, yeah. I guess for me, I mean, my next question, I mean, how... So for me, that was a, a big shift, and it, it's not so much that I, I, I feel massively different about the film now, but how, how is your, your opinion on it changed with repeated viewings? It's not so much with repeated views. I mean, I, um, I, what, I, I've actually only <laughs> seen it about like three times mm-hmm. now because it's not something that, that's plenty to be honest. On, like a Friday, Friday evening or something like that. I don't think I um, would have gone back and watched it again. But, certainly this soon had yeah. had we not been coming up on this show. But he the his most recent film, The Silence, was out. Uh, well, it's, it's still out in cinemas, but they did a kind of a launch of it in London, which was kind of simulcast across the country, which is a follow-up to this. And there was a Q&A afterwards. And it was in watching that again and sort of hearing what's kind of, what's happening now. I was like, I, I, I think the time was right to to watch this film again. So I, you know, got on the phone to you and said, hey, have I got a Hall of Fame suggestion for you? <laughs> and then started watching it again. And I think I can see where you're, where people are coming from in terms, well, it's a what, 15% of people <laughs> are coming <laughs> from, if you uh, look at the Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Only 5% of the critics, so... Oh, well, there we go. I can kind of see where they're coming from there in terms of, like you say... Because those scenes where you've got children running around screaming, you know that this is a recreation and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a film. But actually, if you just watch that, it's harrowing. Yeah. It is utterly harrowing. These kids are terrified. Mm-hmm. They're not acting. Well, there's that. I mean, there's that scene where they recreate a village being torched, and then and and they say cut, and there's a woman in a catatonic state. There's a woman Mm. that's been an extra, and they're they're she just is lying there. They can't revive her. There's a another young girl who's, I think the the niece of Herman Koto, or or certainly, and and he's like, oh come on, it's over now. You did very well, but let's stop now. I mean, they they are using a lot of their relatives, Mm -hmm. but the thing is, what I've learned from watching the Lucas Silence is that. This is on their curriculum, not the film. Well, the film is actually now it's free to view to anybody who lives in Indonesia. It's right. Online. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the actual, the narrative that these people have kind of constructed for themselves, that this was a great victory against communism and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. that sort of thing is taught in certain areas of Indonesia mm-hmm. still. <laughs> right. You know, um, obviously the sort of more, the, the bigger bigger cities and stuff like that, I think as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, that's generally kind of, not taught, but smaller areas are still mm-hmm. kind of teaching it. Um, so these kids are actually being brought up with that as part of their their history. This sort of great victory of this 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 history of violence and mm. inhumanity towards man. So it's not. I don't think it's enough. I'm playing devil's advocate to myself. <laughs> I don't think it's enough for for Oppenheimer to go. Well, you know that. Um, it wasn't people who were victims. It's you know, it's that old Peter Kay routine about crime watch, where it's like you know they don't you know you you've been a victim of a terrible crime. Let's get you back to you know <laughs> yeah. reenact it. He's not doing that, but what he is doing is he is getting people to to play a part in certainly in the village scene, 
which I think is the most real because the other ones are the other scenes that they they reenact they're a bit more fantastical, mm-hmm. and it's generally the 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 perpetrators themselves themselves in those roles, but in that scene I think that is the 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 one sort of indefensible <laughs> moment is that yeah you are kind of just allowing these men to wander into this area and go hey we're looking for people to be in the films we're mm-hmm. to be in the film. Um, and then just manhandling them and throwing them about the place and setting fire to buildings and I mean there's bits in that where they're going you know maybe we're we're maybe going a bit too far here maybe you've got the wrong idea about this and, and you know even they yeah. are kind of watching what's happening going no, this is wrong but I think that's the key to it I think by allowing Oppenheimer by allowing these people to just go for it to just reenact these crimes to talk about these these things that they've done it's showing the kind of insight into into them and it's a lot more helpful i think than to what's there's a quote um i can't remember the exact quote but there's a quote from around the time of the the holocaust in which it's like you know after seeing everything that that was done there what other responses there to scream but i don't know if that's entirely helpful yes there is a period of of screaming you know of this is a terrible thing but then i think there's got to be not understanding not but you do have to kind of understand where these people are coming from what they've what they've what they've done what they're responsible for and how on earth you live with that and i think by bragging about it by seeing themselves as these great heroes they can live with the fact that they've slaughtered yeah hundreds thousands of people so it's an, almost kind of a counter a counterbalance to them writing writing their history as the victors rewriting yeah. history. Because so. I think that's another theme of the the film as well. It's it's kind of about how because I mean we're guilty of it ourselves. And, and you know you look at any Hollywood film, the Second World War, about any sort mm-hmm. of historical event, history is written by the by the victors, and you know you leave certain things out, and you know I I think whilst at its base level it is a film about murder about you know what that what that has on you what effect that has on you as a person and also obviously about the genocide itself it is also a film about what happens when you try and recreate historical events for film i think there's i I want to throw in a couple more things in terms of uh some of the criticism that's Mm -hmm. been leveled at the film i mean we will talk more about why this is a fantastic film and i hope i'm not coming across this you know (laughs) Not trying to go all uh, Paxman on you here with the with the the, the tough questions. I mean, there there was the I read a, a sort of blog post on the Guardian website of uh, one commentator calling it a snuff film. Yes, you know, saying that they was just allowing these people to go out and kind of relive their glory days. The sight and sound, which you know is kind of the the go to tomb of uh, British film review mm-hmm. in a in a lot of respects. You know, they they were amongst the five percent that gave a, a poor review. That one of their reviewers called it formally, historically, emotionally, and conceptually suspect. And I think, mm. you know, we've both done documentary courses. There, There's some unethical decisions with the Oppenheimer's approach. It's hard to feel sympathy for the subject matters for being misled yeah. into what kind of film yeah. they're being made. <laughs> certainly, certainly. But I think what he originally... The story goes anyway that the film he originally wanted to make was a film about the victims, a film about the families mm-hmm. and, you know, what's left after after this horrendous event. And that's what The Look of Silence goes on to become. Right. It's a film about 
um, a guy whose brother was killed during the uprising, and he was born after this happened. So he kind of goes out and meets these people that were responsible for his brother's death. Um, but when he was setting up to make this film, and I think actually, if I remember, I might be wrong on this, but if I remember rightly from the Q&A, Adi Rakum, who is the, the main focus of The Look of Silence, turned to Joshua Oppenheimer and said, no, don't make a film about the victims, make a film about the killers. And that's what he then goes on to do. Um, but yeah, it's hard to feel, it's hard to feel sorry for these these people for being misled into. <laughs> but I think also where, in terms of how it's framed, in terms of how Oppenheimer goes about it, the lack of a a voiceover, the lack of a kind of constant sort of narr- narration from from the filmmaker, kind of for the first certainly the first time you watch it, you almost kind of. You're watching it. You're not necessarily looking out for these kind of, for somebody leading you down a certain path and to feel a certain way, because the, how else are you supposed to feel from a documentary about this, an event like this? You know, you don't feel anything other than horror. Mm-hmm. So I think to sort of say that it's emotionally suspect. Um, I think the ending, I think that's perhaps where that comes in. Is but that's kind of more. Is he acting for the cameras? Or is he feeling genuine remorse? Yeah, and I suppose, you know, you could you could question the emotionally suspect because he does, you know, he breaks. Well, I, I and I use the air quotes here as well, which you can't <laughs> see. He he breaks some of the rules in documentary yeah. filmmaking in terms of interact. You know how he interacts with his subject matter. You know, there are scenes where he shows Anwar and others what he's already yes. filmed earlier yeah. scenes in order. I guess to kind of provoke a reaction, but kind of as a way to kind of sit down and get them to confront what they've actually done, and it seems to have an effect on Anwar. It seems to, yeah. yeah. And the first time I watched it, I was like, "Oh my god, yeah." Mm-hmm. See, but then the second time I watched it, maybe with that that in mind, because I think it was a a, a Q and A they held in Indonesia after one of the screenings of the act of killing. Uh, somebody kind of. Because there was, there was, you know, quite a positive reaction, but there was also quite a negative reaction. People saying, you know, you might as well call that, you know, but it's like basically like a celebration of killing or something like mm-hmm. that. You might as well call it that. And sort of suggesting that Anwar is just acting for the cameras to become this sort of sympathetic Hollywood film star. Yeah. I, I don't think he has, I don't think he's got the wherewithal to kind of do that. Like, yeah. I, 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 I don't buy that as a and I, I certainly don't buy that it's a celebration of killing no, and I certainly reject these kind of uh, snuff snuff film yeah, kind of absolutely. accusations to it but uh, yeah but I think I don't know part of me when watching it the second time was a bit like the retching does go on quite a long yeah the second time I saw it it didn't quite have the, the same effect yeah. on me uh, as it did the first time and, and I it's a tough one because you, you are the first time you watch it you're like yeah he has He's come to terms with what he's done, and he's horrified. Mm-hmm. But then the second time you watch it, you are kind of looking out for sort of any sort of indicators, and I think it doesn't quite. And I don't know if that's why it doesn't have an impact, but it still has an impact. Oh, I, I, I think um, the scene just before as well, where, where he's watching it on the, yeah, and he says something like, "Oh, I don't want these feelings to come back." I mean, that's. Yeah. I think that's kind of that was mixed in with those two scenes in my memory of the mm-hmm. film, uh, and th- th- that's that's kind of the heft to it as yeah. well. I suppose one of the other the the other slight issues with it, I suppose, is kind of the questionable timeline when it came to making it because it was shot over, I believe, from two thousand five to two thousand eleven. So yeah, it's like yeah, used he footage over six years. He, he started making a documentary about workers' rights. Yeah, yeah. Kind of so, 
came to this story. And I, I guess that's another one of the criticisms that's been levelled at him. It's like there's... You feel like you're kind of jumping around. And again, I think that came with my second viewing a little bit. A little it's, bit. You kind of wonder where he's going, you know, what it's been with that. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I guess these are these are all kind of the questions and that how it's, it, again, kind of broken the rules of documentary for that. But I, I guess with something like this, it, it kind of needs to be done like that. And it's... Another one was saying that it, it doesn't... It doesn't really look at the historical side of things that much, but it's it's it's, it's not, not a history that. lesson. It's not a history lesson. You're right. It's the only history lesson you get is that caption. Yeah. The start. It's about what happens after. Absolutely. It's about, it's about the fact that these people are still in control. These mm-hmm. people still have influence, and I think that's another reason it takes so long to get made. Is he's working his way, and also a reason that he's showing them the footage as he goes along is to earn their trust. And yeah, fine, maybe that's not ethically sound. And yes, maybe it breaks the rules of documentary. But he's trying to get to the top of the tree to just show how far this still goes. And I think that's quite a brave move to make. Um, I, think, I think it is incredibly brave filmmaking. All right. Well, I, I mean, I've, I've been... I, I, I'm going to kind of step back in terms of my, uh, my grilling of you here and okay. grilling of the film now because it, it, you've come on. It's a very powerful film. It's a very, very brave film. I mean... Yeah. And we'll maybe talk a bit more about that, but you, you know, just like kind of looking at the stats of it, the, the just at the end credits, the word anonymous appears forty nine times under twenty seven different crew yeah. positions. We'll talk maybe about the effect it's had on the country, but this was a very dangerous film to make for it people. Was, One yeah. of the co directors is listed as anonymous in the yeah, film, which I believe Addy um, was one of the. Certainly, one of those anonymous right. credits. Right. Um, but it's because people are still terrified. Mm-hmm. There is still about speaking out about the about what happened about the hang on a minute this isn't right this <laughs> and you can see why yeah you can, <laughs> you can see, see why that. in the film why but, um, it's it's that kind of thing where the you know the genocide is still technically going on because nobody's speaking about it nobody's going this happened this you know it's you can see why people don't want to attach their names to the film it is a dangerous thing and one of the reasons that Lucas Silence got made so swiftly. It was made before uh, the act of killing came out. Was because Joshua Oppenheimer was still in quite good stead with the higher ups. Yeah, who we are still thinking this is going to be a great <laughs> yeah. action film that's going to be seen in London. Forget yeah. Jakarta. This is going to London. Exactly. So that obviously when it comes out, he's not really very welcome there mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, it's it is brave to do that. But then I suppose as a filmmaker, as an American filmmaker who lives in Denmark, you do have that freedom. I guess, mm-hmm. and also protection, you know, to go in and kind of <laughs> make this film about about a corrupt government, about a you know, about a dreadful event in history that's that's kind of been whitewashed. We've kind of deviated from the script a wee bit in terms of the questions I sent you beforehand, and you've been a very good sport with that because I've been throwing things at you that kind of came up last minute. We've had documentaries into the Hall of Fame before. We had Koya Naskatsi, which is a little, a little different from this yeah, film. Yeah, it is, but it's a film I love very much, actually. Yeah. And we've had Beyond the Mat, the uh, classic wrestling documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why do we need this one in? Because it's, it's different. I mean, documentary is, by its very nature, it's always different. It's always mm-hmm. a different thing. Um... I like the fact, although like you know, we've already discussed, it kind of breaks the rules a little bit, but I like the fact that there's no intrusive voiceover. I like the fact that it's it's not an observational documentary, obviously, because a lot of it is very staged. Um, but I like the fact that it basically just allows these people 
mean, obviously there's, there's questions. And then he kind of just lets you just observe these people discussing, just having conversations, reenacting these things to make up, to say make up your own mind. There's only one way your mind's going to go unless you're, you know, yeah. a psychopath. But, um, that's why, I mean, obviously, Koyaniskatsi, I'm trying to compare, for some reason, I'm trying to compare that <laughs> to Koyaniskatsi and Beyond the well, There's no um, voiceover in Koyaniskatsi <laughs> either. No, no, well, unless you count Koyaniskatsi. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I just, I think it, it differs from the, the documentary style because it is, it's not that formalised documentary structure. It's, it's part, there's parts observation, there's parts, do you want to say entrapment, but parts set up. And also, like I've said before, it blurs the lines between reconstruction and, you know, actual historical footage. Because mm. that, that scene, those scenes with the village burning, they, they don't feel like a recreation. No. They, you know, it does feel like that, that is happening. And you've got, like, this, I can't remember the name, this, like, military youth that they've got in their ridiculous yeah, camouflage. The, um, the, the Panksilla youth. Um, and uh, I mean that's very uncomfortable you've got all these young men that would have been too young to have been a part of these things yeah. but you know they, you can tell they just wish that there were they could go out and, and yeah. they could they could uh, there was a few more communists for them to, to exterminate around exactly. there and it's it's fascinating how this how this co- the word communist just became a catch all and it's something that's still used yeah. within their history you know when they go on the TV show the TV presenters like how did you exterminate all these co- communists yeah. how did you do it so well in a, such a humane way it's just Remarkable. It is utterly remarkable. Um, they've become like this. The, the communists have become this kind of bogeyman figure that it's like, well, you know, did it ever really, ever really exist? And I think one of the, it's not, a, it's not a film that's full of jokes or you know no. laughs, but I, I never failed. It never make, never fails to make me. It's a very hollow laugh, but the bit where uh, Herman is campaigning for workers' rights. Oh yeah, I mean that is sort of a light. R- that's just like really thrown in there. What? <laughs> Workers' rights. <laughs> really? Man of the people. It, yeah, it's. Yeah, I, I mean that it, it differs from those other documentaries because it, you know it's a it's a different story. It's a it's an important story, and it's. I mean, yeah, Vince McMahon was annoyed about Beyond the Man, <laughs> but, uh, but this is the whole government annoyed. <laughs> yes, indeed, and it just and it's made the rest of us, you know, sit up and take notice of some of a moment in history that we got no real kind of knowledge of. And uh, Oppenheimer has been very, very vocal about kind of pointing the the finger back at, at Western yeah, uh, yeah. societies as well for their. There's there's some footage in the the director's cut, but the, the footage I remember most is. The look of silence opens with a news report. I think it's like it's either CNN or NBC from, from the time. And obviously, this is prior to your very early stages of, of Vietnam. And it's like you know, yeah, there was a, a great communist, uh, a victory over the communists in Indonesia. And this American reporter is interviewing one of these guys. He's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and it's, he says something like, yeah, at one point, one of the communists was praying me, praying for me to kill him, because he was a communist. And it's, you know, it's painted as this, this victory. And then I th- there's a moment in which I c- I said, shall... No, it's um, Goodyear, Goodyear uh, Tires. Uh, open a factory in Indonesia. And it's essentially slave labour for like those that weren't killed, but those have been, who have been imprisoned. And you're like, this is only 50 years ago? So yeah, I think now they are sort of going to Congress to try and... 
Freedom of Information Act and all that kind of thing to, to bring out the documents as to what was going on in the States at this time. And maybe that will, will lead back here as well, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, as well as the overall, you know, the overarching story of, mm-hmm. of, of how, how this has been depicted, uh, what I, again, I'm going to say what I like about the film, but what, what impressed me about the film is how they kind of, not, I don't even think it's really intentionally, but they drop in like these fascinating stories. You've got like the story of like, of, uh, it's, I think it's Anwar's neighbour who when they're filming a scene, he, he kind of pitches a scene of what happened to him with his dad uh, being killed and he talks about burying him. And it, just watching him, he, he's, he's telling them this as if he's telling a joke. Yeah. As if he's like, and it's like, wait for the punchline. You know, we had to bury him underneath a yeah. barrel. And it's just like, and then you see him later on in the scene and you just sort of see the agony on his face and he is acting in a scene, but then yeah. he's not. And it's just horrible. It and, is horrible. And, and then... Attached to that scene as well, you have like this uh, this other journalist who was like coming up and saying, "What was so funny is I had no idea this was going on. I can't believe that you guys were doing this. You were very smooth." And the, everyone yeah. else was like, "We were not smooth at all." Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if this is him kind of covering his own tracks or some extreme form of denial that his brain it, yeah, is playing that's on him. The thing isn't it? It's really hard to judge if if there's there's certain people involved in it, and I think he's a perfect example. The the, the journalist is that because he's a journalist. Does he know exactly what Oppenheimer's trying to do and is covering his back? Or, like you say, is he just going, oh, you know. His, his brain just <laughs> can't just, comprehend what's that, happened. And it's just... Some, yeah, he just turns it off. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's fascinating on that level. You know, as much as anything, you know, we've talked about kind of as a, as a way of kind of combating them the history lesson yeah. that's coming out of the country. I mean, it's a fascinating examination of like this collective guilt and how mm-hmm. it's eaten on people and how it's affected some people. Some people don't seem too bothered by it. Some people admit to kind of having their demons, but almost kind of laughing it off. And yeah, then... yeah. I mean, I think there's the, just the way they talk about what they've done. I mean, um, it is bragging, but it's also, there's the scene where they're all around somebody's house I mean, the whole family's there, and they're talking about how you know they they they're demonstrating actually yeah. how they how they kill someone in front of children in front of, and it's like just like a little it's like a kids it's like entertainment at a kids party, yeah, and it's just so matter of fact and so kind of just oh well you know this is just a casual thing, to the point that there's a moment in which one of it's one of the sort of periphery characters he's I think one of the generals in the that's in the parks of the youth. Uh, talking about sort of raping a thirteen-year-old girl in this tent somewhere. They're they're just sitting, just having a chat in the way that you know, like you would maybe all sit around smoking cigars after a, a lovely meal, you know, and just discussing the affairs of the day. This guy's like, well, you know, I just raped a thirteen-year-old girl, and it's like, oh, you know, there's like oh, it's almost like backslapping and yeah, it's. It's a film that left me just like speechless so often, like my jaw on the floor yeah. at, at, at the people being, at, at, at what's gone on. And it's a film that burrows into your mind for many, many days to come. Let's, uh, you mentioned it kind of at the beginning and uh, the the hope of kind of getting some positives yes, out of the overall yeah. thing. I mean, what what was the effect that, 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 it, that it went on to have in Indonesia? Well, I mean, obviously, like I said before, the... Uh, Rad uh, Adi was sort of urging him to Jonathan Oppenheimer to make a film about why these people are living in fear. And then when the film was was finally put together, finally released, there was uh, 
there was a lot of screenings in Indonesia, like I've said, um, it's free to view online. And actually, just as a result of that, obviously, in terms of a, just a purely personal effect on one person, it then gives Addy a sort of sense of closure, a sense of, you know, discovery. He, go, on the back of this film, of the, the connections that that has given Oppenheimer, he can then go and find some closure, some understanding about what's happened to this brother that he never knew. Um, but in terms of the wider, the wider effects, Tempo magazine, which I believe is a, a sort of Indonesian publication, uh, they published a, a double edition dedicated to the act of killing, uh, which actually broke the 47-year-old the silence in the mainstream media about what happened. Uh, it's been screened thousands of times. Um, it's like I said before, they're not always to positive responses, but you know, there's people are are going out to, to see this film to, to to find out more about you know what's happened. But I mean, I've got a quote actually from the Indonesian Commission on Human Rights, which sort of points the film. Uh, if we're to transform Indonesia into the democracy it claims to be, citizens must recognise the terror and repression on which our contemporary history has been built. No film, or any other work of art for that matter, has done this more effectively than the act of killing. It is essential viewing for us all. And I think that's right. I think the fact that it's been screened globally, it's, it's won a BAFTA, it's putting, you know, in the way that sort of giving the Olympics to Russia or something, you know, it's put Indonesia in the kind of the public conscience around the world that you know all eyes are on are on this country to to move on from this this terrible thing to get rid of these people whether or not that is going to have the, the desired effect you, you can never really know but i think it, it is good that this film's out there and and educating people absolutely absolutely i mean before we get onto the the business of whether it's in or out i mean we've we've covered a lot of the bases there and i think this question has become kind of moot, but why why should this film go into the Hall of Fame? Because uh, the Indonesian Commission of Human Rights uh, said, not really the same, um, <laughs> but that, I mean, I think also, just in terms of an example of of breaking the breaking the rules of documentary, <laughs> in, you know, in a justified way, I think, in a, in a way that gives you a film that, it's not an easy watch by any means, but, I think it's a kind of it's an invaluable look at kind of that that darker side of, of human nature of that you know it, it doesn't give you any easy answers I mean you you know you kind of make up your own your own opinions on whether or not Kong Anwar Congo is repenting for what he's done but you can kind of get a sense because I think we're still as a culture we're too quick to kind of jump to good and evil and I think that it doesn't help. It doesn't help you move on. It doesn't help you understand terrible events by just going, oh, well, they were evil. There's, there's, there's got to be more to it than that. And I think a film like this, that is exactly what it's doing. Um, it's showing how people live with themselves after what they've done. And that there is still a humanity in there as sort of twisted and unrecognisable it might be. Well, I knew this wasn't going to be an easy discussion, and it's been, you know, so often the sh the Hall of Fame just descends uh, on me, uh, just going along with with everything that my guests say, saying, "Yeah, great, great, loved it, loved it." I mean, they're you know 
there have been times where I haven't absolutely loved the films that have been up here, but the the guests have made such a good case for it that uh, it's been hard to kind of turn it down. And you know, I I think this I I wanted to be hard on this film to a certain extent because you know it's it's an important film. It's it's probably the most you know important film in terms of its subject matter that that we're going to cover ever on the Hall of Fame. So I think it's important that that it comes with some very serious discussions about it. And, you know, the film is questionable in some of its techniques. I think it does mislead its its subject matters and make mm-hmm. them think that they are they're making a film uh, that that isn't isn't the director's intention on making and obviously it's it's a bunch of absolute bastards. So it doesn't, on that side of things, it, it doesn't matter that they're yeah. that they're not going to be the stars that they want to be. But there is the question of whether or not you know it's 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 producing unfair results. Um, I don't, you know, all the criticisms of it, you know, not documenting history or, or the the things about the timeline. I I find them kind of irrelevant and out of the yeah. discussion. And I think uh, as are the kind of the people saying oh it's nothing more than a snuff film focusing on these characters you know i think there are some serious he walks a very very fine line sometimes with his with with in terms of enabling these guys yeah. you know in terms of making the locals relive the atrocities you know almost complicit in it you know there's scenes where he goes around and he's filming this guy who's kind of bullying and extorting money from chinese businessmen yeah, which, yeah. which is is really really tricky but i think you know, it breaks the rules of documentary. That's been kind of our, our go-to thing. And absolutely, it needed to to kind of produce this film because what what you see on screen in Indonesia is it's a, it's a country that is, you know, they for all their talk of free men and living free, this is not a country that is living free. They are very much living in a repressive regime. Uh, there's a scene in the TV studios where they're talking about, oh, what will happen if people want revenge? And they say, it's impossible. They can't. They can't rise up. We'll just smack them back mm-hmm. down again. So this is still a, a country still very much under uh, living in fear. And so, you know, it, it's been great to hear that it's kind of been it's been taken on in that country. You know, you kind of look at the effect that it's had. You know, it, it, it did get a lot of press in the UK. I think it has, it's gotten some attention in the US. But to yeah. know that in its native country that it's now kind of being looked at and regarded as this really important thing. And it's perhaps a way that they can confront the past and they can kind of start that healing process so that things can get better. Because it's a very, very dark, uh, very dark subject matter. Yes. But uh, so for all of that, I mean, it's, 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 too important and too significant for all for all the kind of questions that you can raise it's too it's too significant to to the to leave out of the hall of fame so you're two for two mark you've had two films go in and it will sit alongside bizarrely theater of blood (laughs) uh, but uh but that's what it's all about that's what the hall of fame is all about it's recognizing films of all all sorts and but but in many ways uh, maybe not many ways, but the, the film that uh, that Congo thinks he's making with these kind of elaborate costumes and and uh, reenactments of murder is not too removed well, from uh, from Fear of Blood. It's most bizarre, <laughs> you know, when you've got this this uh, war criminal who you, who seems who can't wait to do a bit of cross dressing yeah. in all yeah, in every yeah. scene. He just At any available opportunity. It's just like, and, and there's no scene where anybody ever asks him. <laughs> yeah. There's no scene where anyone has to persuade him. No, he's, he's just, just in a showgirl outfit dancing in a waterfall to Born Free. Yeah. Uh, um, and yeah. So it's just... We didn't really talk about that. No, we didn't talk about that. I think that, that removes any of this, the seriousness of the, 
and we didn't you know we didn't talk about the big musical number at the end where a guy takes the noose from around his neck and presents Anwar with a meadow and says thank you for sending me to heaven yeah. it's like hmm yeah uh, we could go on and on all day it's it's a bizarre you know for all this hard hitting revelations and stuff there are some very very bizarre moments it's a film that begins with like dancing women emerging from the mouth yeah. of a giant fish I mean it's it's very very strange and very unbelievably brave filmmaking and for no, no other reason I mean Joshua Oppenheimer for what you you may think of him in terms of his ethical approach to filmmaking it, it would be a slight on all the the 49 people who put their who risked their lives to make this film yeah. who who feared for their lives when it came out and to ask for it to be made anonymous anonymously so I think for nothing more than that uh, definitely into the Hall of Fame so congratulations on that thank you very much there's one final big question that I need to ask you before we go Mark is uh, okay. when are we getting more two guys what work in the cinema <laughs> because um, you left us on a cliffhanger you, you, you left did. us with oh we we're going to bring you our favourite films from 2014 and yeah. here we are seven um, months later I still watch a lot of films uh-huh. I still watch a lot a lot of films Stuart doesn't right and also we're not in the same city anymore so yeah, it's quite it's tricky. difficult uh, but maybe one day mm-hmm. we'll come back or I'll just replace him well, uh, if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> well I hope he is uh, well look we've, we've, we've already done had moderate success with our Rocky uh, marathon episode and I hope we can get you back on to, to maybe sit through a, a whole series of films oh, in the near future no, I don't, I'm not serious on that <laughs> definitely not definitely not uh, well, but we'll see if we can find something because uh, yeah, it would be good to have you back on well it's been a pleasure as always Mark thank you so much for, for being on the show thanks for having me born free as free as the as free as the grass grows born free to follow Well, another episode is in the books and the act of killing becomes 20th film into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame, where it will join The Big Lebowski, Princess Mononoke, Theatre of Blood, Fight Club, Kill List, Stand By Me, She Wore, Yellow Ribbon, Jaws, Kalyana Skatsi, Total Recall, Sideways, The Raid, Alien, Cinema Paradiso, The Wages of Fear, There Will Be Blood, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Beyond the Mat, and Whiplash. If you want to catch up with any and all of these submission episodes, you can find them all on iTunes or any other non-Apple-related podcast device. These episodes are also going up on our blog, which you can find at hihatfilmreview.tumblr.com. If you want any updates about the shows, be sure to give us a follow on Twitter, at hihatfilmpod, and be sure to join in the fun and games over on Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash hihatfilmreview. That's going to do it for the show. I'll leave you with the final words of the comedian in The Watchmen. It's a joke. Solid joke. Mother forgive me. Right. What did he say? He said, as his edge, I don't know. He only chopped him down because he couldn't see the view no more. What's he mumbling about? What?
What did he say? He said an edge is an edge. He only chopped it down because it sport his view. What's Reaper moaning about? Right. Look, I appreciate your position, Mr. Webley, but you can't go around chopping down other people's hedges without permission. Ah, no. Ah, suppose. Yes, I suppose. Thank you. Right. All right. Mr. Webley, I trust you have a license for that firearm. I don't for this one. Does for this one. He does for this one. What do you mean by this one? 